Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are continuing our journey through the Gospels. This is Gospels Part 42. We might actually be getting close to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We can see the finish line, can't we, Paul? Individual results may vary. <laughs> well, I think that we're closer than we've ever been, which That's is a right. true statement. Uh, I tell right. that all the time when I go hiking with people. How, are we there yet? Well, we're closer than we've ever been. But that aside, last week we talked about um, Jesus continued this this concept of measure for measure. And before, earlier in the Sermon Amount, he used that in how we should deal with our forgiveness with our neighbor and how that relates to how we think about our forgiveness with God. And then he took that and he twisted it into the aspect of judgment and how yeah. in the same way that we think about God and his judgment with people and him giving humanity the benefit of the doubt so often than not, we should do the same for our neighbor and focus maybe more on our own issues and how we can live righteously rather than our instinct reaction being on criticizing the behavior and the lifestyle of someone else. Yeah, this is good stuff. And it is, you know... You get toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's, I mean, I'm totally sympathetic. Some people look at it, and it's like, oh, well, this is a new topic. These, This was just sort of tacked onto the end, this, that, whatever. You know, I see it. I get it. We're trying to, to connect things into their context and whatnot. But, you know, I understand uh, this is going to be another challenging one. As we begin, we're looking at Matthew uh, 7, verses 12 through 14, and... Well, let's read it first, and then we'll start talking about it. Ready, Samuel? Mm-hmm. All right, here we go. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Ooh. Spicy. Yeah. Did it just get a little hot in here? What happened? Yeah, so uh, it starts out with what we all think of, I think, as something like the golden rule. Uh, now... What's important, listen to what's being said. Jesus says that this one rule is the law and the prophets, which is a way of saying that this one rule is the entire Old Testament, the Tanakh, the Torah, plus the prophets, uh, whatever. So, now, first of all, Jesus wasn't the first one to say this. He didn't make it up. It was common paraphrase of Leviticus 19.18. Again, uh, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, that kind of thing. Now, here's the important part, Samuel. This must be understood properly 
as a summary. Summaries do not replace the thing that they're summarizing. They merely act as a pithy reminder of the whole, a way of capturing the essence of the whole. And here's, I've used this example a lot. Samuel, pretend you're 16 and that you're, you know, it's like, hey, Paul, can I borrow your keys? And as you're on the way out the door, I'm like, drive safely. Well, okay. I'm not suggesting at that moment, Samuel, that you either remain ignorant or somehow just forget all of the rules of the road and now all of a sudden only follow that single rule alone that I just gave you and all of its glorious ambiguity. I'm instead using it as a shortcut way of bringing all of those rules of the road to mind through the summary. So to state the golden rule is in a sense to, you know, state the Old Testament or the Torah, the law. It's just like saying drive safely is just a way of reminding someone of the complete set of the rules of the road. Saying love your neighbor as yourself or do unto others you would have them do unto you. It's just another way of saying, hey, keep all of Torah. Mm. And in the same way, uh, let's talk about Paul the Apostle. It's very similar. He's also not talking about replacing the Torah. He's only summarizing it. So, Samuel, I'm going to have you read some stuff. In Romans 13, verses 9 and 10, read that for me. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Yeah. Now, when Paul says that, he's not saying, hey, forget all of those other commandments. They don't mean anything to you. Just love your neighbor as yourself. No, he's saying, if you want to love your neighbor as yourself, that's what all of the individual stuff is leading you toward. So you need to go and know and figure out all that original stuff. You got to know it or you can't properly love your neighbor as yourself. Now, here, this, this is a cool old Jewish story. It comes from the Talmud, so I figured I'd have you read it because you love that. Uh, this is, to be f- explicit, it's the Babylonian Talmud. Uh, it's, uh, I think it's Shabbat 31a. I, I, I think mm-hmm. that's the right pronunciation, but here you go. Uh, read that little bit, Samuel. Once there was a Gentile who came before Shammai and said to him, Convert me on the condition that you teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one foot. Shammai pushed him aside with the measuring stick he was holding. The same fellow came before Hillel, and Hillel converted him, saying, That which is despicable to you, do not do to your fellow. This is the whole Torah, and the rest is commentary. Go and learn it. So, do you see the wisdom of Hillel versus Shammai in this story? Hillel is going, you know what? Fine, I'll meet you where you're at. You say you want to learn the whole thing while you're standing on one foot? Here you go. That which is despicable to you, don't do to your fellow. 
But then he adds, Hey, this is the whole Torah. The rest is a commentary. Go and learn it. He understood that the the summary wasn't enough. He had to instruct the guy to go and learn all the detail that leads to the summary, right? Mm-hmm. It's just an important point. Got to see it. Uh, what else we got in here? The gate is narrow and the way... Uh, 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 wide is the gate that leads to destruction, narrow the way it leads to life. Okay. Now, now remember, we've been on this whole topic about teaching and instruction, how we're supposed to find a good teacher, got to be good students. We should, I, I guess, endeavor to even become good teachers ourselves. But all of this has a, a one point or goal, and, and we could say this of the whole Sermon on the Mount. It's to attain the kingdom and life, eternal life. All that Jesus has been teaching in this sermon has just this one goal in mind, that that your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, so that we may enter the kingdom. Well, that is the narrow way. It's the way defined by God's expressed will, which is what we find in the Torah. This this all fits together. It's, it's, It's a great little picture. Now, some of these words, though, and this is so good. This is specifically looking at verse 14. It says, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Well, this narrow, it's like a stronghold gate. It's a way of, you know, like pinching the enemy in so that they are unable to uh, do any real damage, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, this word hard, it, it it gives the idea of being like oppressive and afflicting, even like an enemy. Well, think about that. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. That's what we're talking about, <laughs> right? And those who find it are few. Uh, that's like a, a trifling amount. It's short. It's too small is another way of saying it. That's life. Now here, you know, we have a great God and he's offering a great, great gift, but this is a crazy warning. We need to be aware of warnings like this. Though our works, our good deeds, whatever you want to call it, won't save us, something is required of us. Faithful, loyal pursuit of him, his ways, choosing his will over our own. This is the entire picture being painted by Jesus in his teachings here in the Sermon on the Mount. And of course, this is the whole of his teaching. There's going to be much, much more. Uh, So anyway, I don't know. This just, it's important that we hear that message. Uh, Here's another one. Enter by the narrow gate, the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Well, that's a really interesting word. The word is abaddon. And so, on one hand, it's, it could just mean Sheol or the grave. We've talked about that. On the other hand, it's also one of the seven names that's given to Gehenna. So, it's like the bad part of the grave right? Mm-hmm. And if that wasn't enough, it's also the, the name of the king of the abyss in Revelation. So this, this word destruction, I mean, in, in every way, it seems to point to badness. 
and those who enter by it are many. And I don't think he's just talking about those, you know, (laughs) let's use American lingo, outside the church. I think there are many in the church who are going to be surprised one day. And uh, hoping I'm not one. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, if if you're looking at this, I mean, it, there's a very simple thing here. Whatever you do, uh, I'm sorry, whatever you wish others would do, you do to them. Uh, basically, he's talking about a narrow gate, a wide gate, an easy way, a hard way. It's it's two paths. And this two paths kind of metaphor, it, it's very common in Judaism walking a path, the fact that there are two paths. There's a very famous document called the Didache that um, I'd love, one day we may actually talk about that in detail. Uh, It talks about the two paths. And here's uh, just a couple of examples, Samuel. Uh, Read uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 33. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Yeah, notice walking, right? Uh, The way that you go, that kind of stuff. Proverbs 2.20, read that, Samuel. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. Yeah, walking paths. And this one is really good because it's very explicit about, hey, there is a way that the good take. Hey, there is a path that the righteous take. And so that's kind of neat. Proverbs ten seventeen is another one. Read that. Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. Yeah. And again, the path to life, uh, obviously sort of infers a path to death. And how are you get on that path of life? Heeding instruction, right? It's good, good picture. So I like that little bit, but wow, that is a strong warning. Yeah. In case you've been paying haven't been paying attention. Yeah, you can't really paint it any other way. It's it's tough any way you slice it. Yeah, and I I mean honestly, I think that I should, you should, everybody listening, those are moments you, you know what? You should reflect. Do you really really know that you are on the narrow way? The one that leads to life? Are you one of the few? It's a tough question, but it's important that we ask ourselves things like that. All right. What do we got next? Um, you know, this, uh, it continues in Matthew. It's also some in Luke, and I think I might read both just because they're, they're different enough. We can get some good stuff out of them. Let's read Matthew first. Chapter 7, verse 15 to 20 says this. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree can't bear bad fruit nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. And again, Luke's is similar, but some good stuff in here. Let's read it. Chapter 6, verses 43 to 45. 
For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor, again, does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Again, yikes, kind of convicting, or Mm -hmm. or at least attention-getting, right? Just good. And, you know, you can kind of feel as we're going through this, Jesus, you know, he kind of be, he seems to kind of be entering into his wrap up, if you will. We've got the basic kingdom image that we started with, talked a lot about what it looks like internally. We were talking about how this starts to move outward, whatever. And in some sense, we're seeing what it looks like across time. But I want to talk a little bit about this. Matthew was specific and said, beware of false prophets. Well, I I want to show, uh, first of all, there were rules for identifying false prophets in the scriptures. So we should at least uh, know about these. So it, things like this, Samuel, if a prophet was speaking of future events, well, those events must come to pass. And you can read about that back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 20 to 22. We don't have to take the time to read it, but what I want you to notice when you go look at it, notice the penalty for acting as a false prophet. What is it, Samuel? Death. Death. Yeah. And I just got to say, that should be sending some shivers up and down the spines of a few too many today in the church. Yeah. It really should. Uh, But let's continue with the rules. Additionally, a prophet must never entice people to idolatry. And very specifically, just to say it, we're talking about other gods. Nothing a prophet ever says should take people to any god other than Yahweh God himself, right? It should also never turn people away from Torah. So, I mean... If we were being mean about it, we could say everybody who preaches supersessionism is a false prophet, in a sense, right? Rip. According to God's own rules. Uh, but And here's the thing. And even if this guy, this prophet, even if he's displaying signs and wonders and all kinds of stuff, if he does any of the things er, that we talked about, future events don't come true, he entices people to idolatry, turns them away from Torah, he is a false prophet. You can read more about that in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. So that's like the foundation. If you were a Jewish guy and you were sitting around listening to Jesus in this Sermon on the Mount, and all of a sudden he started talking about false prophets, those are the things that are going to pop into your head. It's important that you got that. But now Jesus, he's going to bring some further insight into that criteria. So, I mean, just... Thinking about it, Samuel, you've seen trees in your life, I'm guessing, yes? Yeah, I love trees. Yeah, yeah, there you go. All right. Now, there are a lot of things about a tree that we might look at and just think of as uh, ornamental, 
like maybe it's it's particular shape or or the leaves that it has or or maybe if it flowers or something like that so it it seems kind of ornamental we know they have other purposes etc but whatever but even the fruit itself may appear delectable on the outside but that fruit must be tasty and nutritious and plentiful. That's the thing that makes a tree truly good. Now, in this case, we're talking about fruit trees, and I know we have different types, but you you go along with the idea. You get what we're talking about here. The prophet's life, whether they're a false prophet or not a false prophet, the, the prophet's life, his thoughts and words and actions, that's that's the fruit that we're talking about. They must be symbolically like the good fruit, meaning that they line up with Torah. They are good deeds. And this is the thing that makes the guy worth listening to in the first place. And importantly, even though Jesus is adding this little bit, hey, you got to have good deeds, you got to this, you got to that, you got to have the good fruit, all of the other criteria still apply. It's not like Jesus is replacing the earlier criteria with new criteria. He's simply saying, hey, here's another way, another good indicator. You can look at the fruit in this guy's life and know who or what he's about. And again, back to our talk about judging, do not judge. Well, this is using more of the discernment kind of judging rather than the the God domain kind of judging. So anyway, I thought that was really good. And I'm guessing you've got a, a Marty episode about fruit in there somewhere. Oh man, that's escaped me. Uh, you, you've got the, the reference this time. Oh yeah. Do you remember he was talking about that one? It was like a really big fruit and then like, I don't know, you cut into it and it, it's like it deflated or, I mean, there was oh, something yeah. about it. It looked like it's this almost beautiful, like empty inside. Yeah. It was a beautiful, beautiful piece of fruit and it was good for nothing. <laughs> yeah. It's one yeah. of the images of the desert. Now it's coming back a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Anyway, that's another one. Uh, but then, okay, we have another one of these phrases, cut down and thrown into the fry, uh, fryer. <laughs> so uh, it's cut down and thrown into the fire, which is just a way of saying the tree is of no use, at least as a tree. Now, okay, we could extend this metaphor out to eternal destinies, um, but we don't have to. And honestly, I just don't think that's really in view here at all. That's, that's not what Jesus is trying to get at. He's literally talking about, hey, you know, you cut down things and throw them in the fire. However, um, just notable, Jesus is repeating something that actually got attributed to John the Baptist a little earlier on, which I think is kind of cool. That was way back in Matthew 3, 19. We could look at that, or we have looked at that, whatever. That was kind of good. And one more little bit, according to Luke's version, and I, I just... This is important, and you're going to love this, Samuel. We know when God created everything, you go through Genesis chapter 1 through, you know, the very beginning of chapter 2, what is the thing that you walk away with about God and his creation and everything in it? What is it? It is fundamentally good and not fundamentally broken. Yes. And so... That gets that becomes a very difficult discussion with people in the church today because you know they want to hang on to this, you know I you know I'm uh, what a worm am I or you know whatever things you can think of my righteousness is filthy rags all that stuff, but look at the look at the words here according to Luke's version. 
there is such a thing as a good person. I mean, listen to it. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. It's a lot of good. Yeah. And notice it's not God does it through him or, you know, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, right? So there is such a thing as a good person. Is that going to save them? No. But there's such a thing as opposed to an evil one, right? Now, Luke isn't specifically speaking of prophets in this particular little bit. At least he doesn't explicitly say it. Okay, and so this may suggest that Matthew's use of the terms a little more general, like for uh, teachers or leaders, you know, we've been focusing on prophet, thought maybe I should mention that. But point is, this goodness, this or the evil, whatever, this goodness comes from the abundance of their heart. Now, in Judaism, the way that they talk about this is the good inclination and the evil inclination. And and that gets down to the whole concept of free will. What is your free will about? Well, it's you are free to choose God's will above your own uh, or not. The good inclination is when you choose God's will over your own, the evil inclination when you don't. And is anybody going to argue that as a general rule, when we look at humanity, well, sometimes it looks like the evil inclination wins a lot, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's true. But the point is, and and this is what at least Judaism is getting at, and and the reason I'm I'm saying this, harping on this, is because... Where are we at? We are in first century Israel, a bunch of Jews talking to each other. This is what's going on in their heads. So the point is, you have both the good inclination and the evil inclination, and I'm going to be really explicit here. You have both before and after the fall. Now, you're going to have some, they're going to argue that the only way that any good thing can come from any human is if God reaches in and does it. And I'm I'm just saying that's overreaching. And I would even call it contradicting Scripture. Point in fact, this little verse in Luke, the good person out of the good treasure in his heart, produces good, right? And it, in a sense, it's abdicating our responsibility in the relationship. Luke is applying the exact same criteria for Matthew's prophets to people generally. And, I mean, for whatever it's worth, we should only listen to and imitate those who are worthy, the ones who set the good example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so good. It it makes me think of how differently would people treat one another if when they look outward and they see someone else performing good or their their life seems to indicate that they are a good person but somehow through their knowledge they know that they're not on God's team and instead of having that kind of instant gut reaction that a lot of us in the church have experienced or known somebody to experience it's like they're not allowed to have that kind of good that's only supposed to come from God like instead of having that reaction like wouldn't it be awesome to think about wow, like, they are really doing some good, and they're not even on God's team. Like, 
what would their life be like if if they could get on God's team and they're like channeling that good within his umbrella um exactly i think that that's a really good point um and then yeah this aspect of the good inclination and the evil inclination it just reiterates this aspect within Judaism that sin is not like i mean cuz a lot of people call it our sin condition or it's almost like this plague that we have but in in Judaism and in the eastern philosophy world like sin is primarily something that you do exactly and like and it it shows that like you have the freedom the opportunity to do something differently yeah. um i mean our our bent can be leaning more towards one or the other but that doesn't mean that we don't have that capability within god's overarching goodness of how he created us to like, come back to him Exactly. And that's, it's, it's very difficult to have this conversation, uh, among Christians because some of them, boy, they are going to be really bothered and offended by what we're saying right now. But it doesn't, it it doesn't make sense. It just, it's important to get that picture in your head that, you know what? You do have free will and you have this choice. You, You can't act like you're, you know, just at the, at the mercy. Yeah, well, let's go with that one. That you're at the mercy of, you know, oh, can't help it. Got a sin nature. Well, okay. How about if we take sin nature and we call that the evil inclination and and say, uh, but let's not forget, you also have the good inclination. And, you know, you can do this. I'm I'm not saying that God can't help us or doesn't help us or whatever, but I'm also not saying that it's completely out of our control. And and some people have that image, and I think it's just, I, I think it's bad for them. I, I, I yeah. think it gives them a bad picture. Yeah. Yeah. I think you and I are trying to maybe say, we've, we as people in the Western church have been told so much that we can't do something or be a certain way, and we're trying to maybe bring to light God's story with him emphasizing that of all the many things that we can do. Yeah. That he actually like, requires of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. You're right. Okay. Well, so, so having said that, <laughs> and, and I, I don't know, maybe this is actually going to, you know, sort of uh, enforce or enhance or, or uh, help our story. Let, let's take a look at the next little bit. Uh, now, Luke says it really, really, succinctly he's chapter 6 verse 46 he says this why do you call me lord lord and not do what i tell you matthew expounds on that a little bit he's got uh, expands on it a little bit chapter 7 verses 21 to 23 he says this not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Okay, so... 
Now, we were, think about this, we were talking about prophets and, you know, and of course, Luke was a little more general than prophets, but, you know, how they could be, you know, worthy or unworthy, whatever. But now we've fully moved from the prophet, whether he's worthy or unworthy, right back to ourselves. We too, and I'm going to use a word we were using a minute ago, we must not be ornamental, or at least not ornamental only. There are many, many things that we can say and do that have the appearance of, I don't know, call it religion, prophecy, healing, casting out demons, etc. But these are not the things that God cares about, certainly not the most. What God cares about is very simple, though not always easy. It's just this, know God's will and do that. And how do we know it? How do we know God's will? Well, it's from the scriptures. He's already told us. And as if that wasn't enough, the Holy Spirit is a great aid as well. But the scripture must remain primary. Why? Because humans are easily deceived from within and from without. That is why when we believe or we think that the Spirit is speaking, it's so important that we know God's will from the Scripture so that we can more easily be confident in the quote-unquote voice that we are hearing, right? We, we, we can know that it isn't contradictory, and we can know that it's not self-serving or, you know, something like that. There's another phrase here that caught my attention in verse 22, Matthew, it says, on that day. Now, this is common for phrasing, referring to what, Samuel? Um, the, the end. <laughs> yeah, the day of judgment on that day. Now, it gets in scripture, sometimes it's a little loose. Sometimes you think it's pointing to the kingdom, sometimes to the, the actual judgment itself. It's a little, little confusion there. But in this context, I mean, obviously, Sermon on the Mount, kingdom is the obvious topic throughout the entire sermon, so it's reasonable to apply that here. Entrance to the kingdom will be denied. On that day, many will say, but I'm going to say I never knew you. And there's another phrase, I never knew you. Samuel, did you know? Let's say that you were, you know, some young Jewish guy living in Israel in the first century. And you found a teacher and you were like, that's the one, buddy. I'm hanging out with him. And then, not that you would ever do this, but in our hypothetical, you become lazy and you don't really do a good job of being a disciple. Well, if you did that, your teacher, your rabbi, he would put you on what they call on the ban. B-A-N, ban. You'd be banned. It completely ends all of the relationship between the teacher and his disciple for a specified period of time. Now, in the first century Israel, we have some examples. Uh, could have been like a week or a month. But in this context, it only makes sense. It's the duration of the kingdom. How long is that, Samuel? Uh, isn't it a thousand years? A thousand years. That's quite a ban. But look at that. And then I will declare to them... I never knew you. Jesus will put them on the band. <laughs> I think that's amazing. 
connection. But anyway, uh, they're not allowed in the kingdom. And then look what else he calls them. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So if you if you are lawless, Samuel, then you are one who is without law. Well, I have to ask you, what law are we talking about? The Torah. Yeah. If you are lawless, worker of lawlessness, it means you're not fulfilling Torah. You are instead abolishing Torah. Mm-hmm. So depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, just as a quick little side note, also happens to show up in one of the Psalms. Mm. Psalm 6, verse 8. It's kind of a cool thing. But anyway, all of this is getting down to the thing that we keep harping on. There's the idea of orthodoxy. What is that, Samuel? Uh, doesn't that have to do with the certain beliefs within a system? Yeah, it's like knowing or interpreting the things of God, the scriptures, etc. Yeah. And then there is orthopraxy. Do you remember what that is, Samuel? Isn't that more of the action and how the orthodoxy influences the way that you live? Yeah. One is like the knowing and the understanding. Orthopraxy is the actual doing of the very thing that you think that you know and understand. You have to put it into practice. If you are Christian, well, that's just a way of saying that you're a disciple of the Christ. And so you must have both the orthodoxy, the correct understanding, and the orthopraxy, the actual walking it out. If you do not hear and do, you aren't a true disciple. These two things are uh, primary, foundational. They're just required, period. Man, it's hard for me to believe that this is Jesus' version of his wrap up, like I feel like this is the heaviest stuff he's talked about <laughs> so far. Well, yeah, it's that thing of if you can take everything that's come before, everything that he's been telling you in this Sermon on the Mount, what does it lead to? It's it's it is it's a heavy deal. But you know, that's uh, it's just good stuff. Mm-hmm. Let's keep going because actually we're almost done, and it and it's it's it just gets better. So let's keep going. So Matthew, let's see, there's two parts. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, and also Luke chapter 6, verses 47 to 49, but I'm just going to read the Matthew one for now. It says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell. And great was the fall of it. So again, I mean, I didn't even have to try hard to emphasize that, that the words themselves, they're really emphasizing both hearing Jesus's words and doing them. And I'm just suggesting this is the same emphasis that has been in place since the beginning, the beginning of his sermon, the beginning of the entire story with God, the beginning of everything. 
So, and <laughs> this is important too. If somehow you're reading this and, and, and you get this image in your head that the first century Jews were, you know, they were kind of like the three little pigs and didn't really understand how to build houses and, you know, that sort of thing. Okay, you would be wrong. Jesus wasn't offering up little-known building secrets. Like us, they had a solid understanding of foundations, good building materials, etc. But because they had a good, solid understanding of these things, this metaphor then was also very understandable. So the meaning is simple and straightforward. If you wish to be like a strong house, impervious to even mighty natural events, dare we say, acts of God, then you too must know his will. That's your firm foundation. And do his will. Those are your quality building materials. We have to sincerely ask ourselves the question, am I the foolish man? Have I substituted For example, a set of beliefs and doctrines and traditions for the true and right concern, radical obedience and imitation and discipleship. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, it's a high, high call of repentance from acting contrary to God's will as defined in the Torah, and a very, very high, high call of obedience to that same Torah. This is the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And, if we remember, without which we cannot enter the kingdom. The wise man is going to seek proper understanding and put it into practice. Yeah, this this part is an, an enigma for me because are we to treat this as kind of like another parable like Jesus has shown so many times previously in the Sermon on the Mount, and and if that is so, what we know earlier about parables is that it wasn't meant to confound understanding, it was meant to bring understanding, and Mm -hmm. so, like, we're not supposed to treat them as this mysterious um, Gnostic thing that you have to... attain to in order to understand but actually he was bringing light to aspects of the kingdom in this case is it supposed to be interpreted as simply as it reads and the reason i ask that is i know that like marty solomon he has an episode in his discipleship podcast where he kind of pushes it back against that a little bit and says that maybe the concept is a little bit more complex than we give it credit for um, in terms of the two people and where they're building their houses, and one has maybe an allure to it uh, compared to the other, and it has to do with like being in the bottom of a wadi in the desert, and I'm almost like a obstinance that there's going to be flood that's going to be coming uh, for why you build your house, so. I just wanted to give some space for that and how we're supposed to interpret this aspect of his wrap-up. Yeah. Well, I, th- I actually, I think this fits very well with uh, what I remember Marty talking about in there because 
What did it take in Marty's example for you to build the house on the rock? That was the hard work. That was the narrow way and, and, and hard is the, right? That, that mm. was that. Well, what did it take to build down in the bottom of the wadi? Well, that, that was easy. That was the easier thing to do. And yet, that was also kind of like the, the stupid thing to do. Uh, so, yeah, I, I feel like, well, I guess there's, there's definitely the chance I'm not, you know, like tuning in to the real essence of what Marty was saying, but I feel like they all fit very well together. And ultimately, I, I guess I would say, yeah, it really is this simple because in effect, it's like the summary of the entire Sermon on the Mount. And so, again, when we're talking about a summary, that means that you're referring back to all of the details that preceded it or it, that, you know, the, that it stands for, or whatever you want to say. And so, yeah, in the end, all of these things that Jesus is talking about, now he's, he's helping us understand what it is to be a citizen of the kingdom. He's helping us to understand how we are to read and interpret the commandments differently and better. Uh, he's teaching us how we're supposed to set aside our uh, rights and privileges for the sake of of serving others and, and loving others, that kind of thing. He's teaching us all of those things. But in the end, all he's really saying is, God's already told you all this stuff. God's already laid all this out. If you really look into it, this is what you'll find there. And this is what you need to do. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing that you've had to do all along. Just know it and do it. So mm -hmm. I think there is a simplicity to it. I, I agree. And I think I now remember one aspect that Marty said. It's like people treat this aspect of what Jesus is saying and they they want to say like it's a well, duh, Jesus, like I know that I'm supposed to build my house on a rock instead of in the sand. But Marty's point was, in reality, when people actually, when push comes to shove and it's time for them to choose it, that this scenario is actually way harder than people treat this this teaching of Jesus's. Like, it, <laughs> when you have that option, it is way more tough to... to put in that work than it is to, to choose the easy route. And that's why one is wide and that's why one is narrow. Oh, now I totally agree with that. Hey, yeah, that's just, that's humans. That's what we do over and over and over. We crazy. <laughs> yeah. Or as Hannah would say, we cray cray. <laughs> Love you, babe. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's do this last little bit. And then, believe it or not, we will actually be done with the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, my goodness. Man, we're going to have to, like, play party sounds or something. Yes. Matthew chapter 7, verses 28, well, and 29, and then uh, chapter 8, verse 1. So here we go. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. 
Okay. A uh, couple of things. Again, we've got these astonished crowds. We've seen that before. And and the reason that I kind of want to include all the way through chapter 8, verse 1 is because, do you remember, Samuel, when we started this teaching, who was he talking to? He was talking to his disciples, right? Yeah. But now he finished and the crowds were astonished and the crowds followed him down the mountain, right? Hmm. <laughs> so... Uh, I just, I just, we, we pointed it out back in the beginning, and, and we remembered to do it here now at the end, but obviously, while he was teaching all of this stuff, people started gathering around, and it just grew and grew and grew. But here's the, the th- why were they astonished? Okay, now, obviously, we just went through the whole thing. The teaching was particularly good, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if there was a preacher at a church, and he was preaching this stuff people would probably go. It's good stuff, right? But it was more than that. He was teaching as one who had authority. So, what does that mean? Uh, Samuel, did the scribes teach, you know, kind of like they were unsure, had no real confidence? I mean, knowing what the scribes do as their job, I wouldn't think that they would have and uncertainty and lack confidence because they're so steeped in the text day in and day out. Exactly. So it's not as if they hadn't seen people teach with authority before. So what are they talking about? Well, this is referring to a common method of teaching that utilized what we would probably refer to as an appeal to authority. Everything that they said was validated by claiming that the teaching originated with one or more known and accepted teachers. And so what we might do, just to just try to give you a, a really simple elementary kind of example, we might say that Mark said something in the name of Peter, who said something in the name of Jesus, who said it in the name of the Father. Mm-hmm. So you see the the appeal of authority that you're just walking your way back to, you know, wherever the original ideas came from. Well, that's what you would normally hear. A scribe would be talking and they'd say, you know, Hillel says, blah, 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 you know, and when Hillel talked, he would say, I don't know, whoever his teacher was, right? Everybody's referring to whoever came before. Well, uh, Jesus, apparently, he didn't do any of that. He just taught in his own name with his own authority. He didn't refer to anyone except God occasionally. So he was definitely acting outside the box. And the wisdom and understanding that he was bringing, I mean, at the very least, equaled, but I would say probably in most cases, exceeded that of the scribes. Okay, it totally exceeded it, but whatever. I was trying to be nice. But that he was on his own authority. So when we say things like, well, maybe I should set this up. So here you go. What happened? He was talking to disciples. Crowds join in. They're always astonished. They're following around everywhere. So when we, th- when we say things like the Jews rejected him, okay, yes, there's an obvious sense in which it is true. As a nation, on the whole, they did. I mean, That's why the story even looks the way it looks today. 
But I think that people often get a really bad image in their head. So we've seen these crowds before. We've seen it. Here it is again. There are great crowds that are drawn to Jesus's message, just like there were great crowds drawn to, hey, maybe he can heal me, or maybe he can, you know, get rid of my demons or something like that. Just think all of these podcast episodes that we've gone through, everything that we've done in this Sermon on the Mount, all of the hard-hitting information that just, I mean, for all practical purposes, it's telling you, you need to be a completely different being than you are right now. And and practical teaching on how to do that, crowds were gathering because they wanted to hear it. Mm. And they were Jewish. We need to get the right picture in our head. And I would say, People in churches, they need this. They need to approach the Sermon on the Mount with the same passion and hunger, desire to hear it and figure out how to do it, Mm -hmm. live it. Yeah, I really, I was looking on Blue Letter Bible while you were on this part on uh, the Greek word for authority and one of their options for the Greek lexicon they give an alternate definition as power of choice, liberty of doing as one pleases, leave, or permission. And if you take that definition in terms of how Jesus was interacting with the scriptures, it's almost like he had this this freedom to interact with it as he desired because like in a sense like he was interacting with himself because he was the word made flesh um and i have to think i mean i know in at one in one aspect the jewish people love their ancestors and former teachers and love honoring them and doing that thing within the system of so-and-so teacher said this and it came before him from this person. All that being true, it had to have felt somewhat freeing and like just refreshing for a Jewish listener to hear this person teaching about the law and not being confined within that system i don't know that would just yeah. be really awesome in that moment to hear somebody doing it that way oh yeah that's a good point yeah he had to just really stand out again we don't have any real indication that he had a rabbi or any formal training or anything I don't, we don't know i don't think you and i are on the john the baptist was his rabbi team <laughs> no no we did hear that didn't we no no, I don't think that's a thing. But, you know, it, it's, uh, I don't know. It's just such an amazing picture. I'd do anything to be there. Yeah. That'd be, oh boy, it's good. Well, I feel like we need some uh, epic final statement to wrap up Sermon on the Mount because we, we, we officially made it. You got anything? Uh, yeah, I'm tired. <laughs> no i no i i don't the only thing that's in my head because we've been saying it 50 times on this episode is 
you gotta hear it and do it. That's just it. Yeah. It's just it. I think this is worth a a re-listen for both listeners and podcast host because there's a lot of stuff in here to chew on and meditate and try to implement so yeah just so you know we also listen to our own podcast and every once in a while we get that surprise look like oh that was good i forgot about that Mm -hmm. (laughs) so yeah well we should let people go they don't want to hear us yammer so uh we're done okie dokie thanks for listening to the okie dokie most podcast Please don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Please be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we hope and pray that you do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. See you next week.